Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Griggs and I'm the host of the Renaissance Podcast. And today alongside me is Jacqueline Wilson from Flying Diamond, Wilson Flying Diamond Ranch. I wanted to make sure I got that right. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. It's a, it's a bright, bright, cold morning here in Western Nebraska. Surprisingly, I'm in Austin currently and I think it was just all of the cold front around America because it dropped significantly overnight here too. But to get started, I love you guys like 50 degrees right now. (laughs) Yeah. But to be fair, it's all relative. Whenever it drops 45 degrees overnight, it will be really cold. But yeah, it's obviously not. It's not Nebraska cold. (laughs) But yeah, so my favorite aspect of this podcast is just talking to folks that have been in the the world of agriculture since birth, essentially, um, because Myself, and I know a lot of people on social media and just overall, we're so disconnected from our food, so disconnected from agriculture. And I think that's just the, the beauty of agriculture is there's, for example, your fifth generation, and there's just so much history and yeah, there's just so much history out of that. So I guess to get started, what was your experience like growing up on a ranch? <laughs> you know, I, I I don't think I would change the experience at all growing up. And I think that's one of the things people always are so intrigued by by my childhood. And I'm like, it, to me, that was what was normal. You know, I mean, we were we were demographically isolated. I mean, we're an hour from the closest town of a significant population size, and that's 5,000 people. So, you know, and that also is the closest grocery store. So, I mean, we're an hour from a gallon of milk. And it was one of those things growing up. I mean, I was around animals from the from the time I can remember. I remember my parents were telling me this story. I was like two or three years old, and they were working cattle that day, and they couldn't find me. And I had gone over into the other side of the corrals, had taken my dad's horse over to a set of corrals, climbed up the fence, got on his horse, and was riding his horse around. And here is like two or three years old. So they finally <laughs> found me as I was sitting on top of the horse. So... But I mean, you know, growing up, it was great. We had, we had freedom to explore and run and, and I mean, play, play uh, indigenous people and livestock management personnel, you know, and, and do all those fun things I think kids really should be doing nowadays. You know, I mean, I remember getting in trouble for eating dirt at one time and I was trying to convince my mom, well, the calves did it. Why can't I do it? And so it's a totally different lifestyle for sure. Um, Grade school was really unique. Uh, We had what they called class one school. So it was like the quintessential one room schoolhouse. It was about a half hour away. My mom drove. We didn't have a bus. We took our own lunches. There was no cafeteria system. Um, I was usually the only one in my class. So we had, we were really advanced, I should say, in terms of our education because we had such a one-on-one teaching. Um, I was there from K through eight. And then I went to high school about an hour and 15 minutes away. So I boarded in town during the week with a lady who I did not know when I moved in with her. My parents paid her 160 bucks a month for me to, to stay at her house and she would feed me breakfast and, and dinner. And um, yeah, she became my second mom. So, and then I'd go home on the weekend. So it was, it was a really awesome way to grow up for sure. That's great. And I'm curious then too, as you were getting older and then did you, did you go to the University of Nebraska or is the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that even right. Yep. Yep. I did. I yep, went to the University of Nebraska back, back actually when we had a good football team um, for, for four years and I studied business and ag, ag, well, ag business and ag economics. And then I was a, I was a college dropout. I uh, came home. I was asked to come home for a summer to work. And, and so I said, yep. And that was 20 some years ago. And, you know, summer just rolled around into fall and it just kept progressing. And I was to the point I said, well, you know, I should go back to school sometime. And I, there were some other opportunities that came up for, for some leadership programs. And I went that direction instead. So yeah, I still, still someday, maybe they'll give me an honorary degree, but until that point, I guess I'm still going to just be a college dropout. (laughs) (laughs) Did you always think that you were going to take over the ranch? Because for example, I worked on a farm last year in Pennsylvania, and I believe he was also a fifth generational farmer. And he was talking about how before he took over his farm, um, I forgot what he was doing, but then he was just thinking a lot of just the sense of continuing on the family legacy. And that actually brought him back to that. And yeah, I'm just curious if that's something that you always saw yourself doing that or if it just the legacy part and wanting to continue on 
stewarding that same land took you back? Not originally. You know, I, I originally, when I was in college, especially, I, I was really had some political aspirations. I, I loved lobbying. Um, I wanted to go to law school, be a lobbyist was kind of the, the direction that I was heading. Um, and, you know, I, I knew in the back of my mind, I would end up at the ranch someday. Like that was kind of the thought process, but it wasn't as soon as it ended up being. Um, and, and so people usually ask, well, why did you, why did you come back to the ranch? And I'll, and I'll say guilt <laughs> because, you know, there, there is so much guilt and that level of responsibility, I feel going into multi-generational operations to make sure that, you know, they, they do continue to succeed. And, and when I get asked, you know, what's your goal? And my goal is just to not mess it up. You know, I don't want to be the generation that screws it all over. And so I feel that there's a lot of additional responsibility sometimes because of multi-generational operations. And I get that, you know, we get that argument a lot between multi-generational or first generation and and which would be better. And I there's, there's pros and cons to both, you know. And I, the way I, I had somebody explain it to me once and I, I couldn't ever come up with a better explanation in a in a first generation operation you might have to build the building you might have to buy the cattle you might have to buy the equipment you know in a multi-generational operation say you have a piece of art on a wall you have the building you have the art but if you want to move that piece of art you usually have to ask somebody where you can move it to and how it's best to move it and you might not even like that piece of art and so it was something that kind of really set with me is there's there's definitely the pros and cons for sure you know and there's a lot of struggles on on both aspects you know on the on the you know on the first generation the economical aspect but on the multi generational it's it's more working around succession and and those communication and getting along aspect and trying to continue to adjust and change an operation to make it economically feasible too. So there's challenges on both ends. I'm curious with that guilt, do you, th- I don't know if this is the right question, but do you think that's a, a good thing for, for this? Because I know, for example, he also felt some sense of guilt whenever he was not, I mean, that was part of the reason why I brought him back was that sense of guilt. Yes and no. I mean, I think I think that's one of the things that we have to be really cautious of. And I tell I tell especially I speak a lot now, both both nationally and also internationally. And one of the things that I tell young people, um, you know, I'm talking college students that are interested in going back to their operations is is make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. You know, make sure you're not doing it because you feel pressured to come back, but because it's something that you really love and are interested in doing. You know, I have a younger brother. And he's four and a half years younger than me. He, he, he graduated college. He came back to the ranch for about a month and decided, no, it wasn't for him. And he moved to the other end of the state. He's married, couple kids, very, very successful, you know, entrepreneurial, has built multiple businesses and, and very successful. And, you know, would he have been able to do that if he was attached to the ranch? Probably not. And so, you know, I think, I think the guilt picture is, is, I, I like to say it was guilt at first. Now I'm here because I love it. You know, I want to do it. Um, it's who I am as a person. And I have the opportunity to to make the industry better from the position I have here. And so, you know, that guilt has long gone out the window, but there for many years. I mean, it was it was tough. It, mm. it really was a struggle to come back for sure. Hmm. So I know you also were talking about making sure that the succession is successful for you, for your example, because I know you have a close relationship with your father, did you have these talks early on, or how did you plan ahead for whenever you started taking over for yourself? Yeah, my my dad, I you know I'm I'm that's that's probably my biggest accomplishment is is my relationship with my dad, and you know I I feel we're we're besties. He may not admit it, but we're really besties. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he won't admit a lot to me. He just he just doesn't care for me to pat myself on the back at all. So he doesn't want me to get big head syndrome at all. So um, you know, those that those were probably the the toughest part that I mean for sure of coming home was those conversations. Cause I had been home I had been home about ten years, so a decade, before we started ha- having that conversation that things weren't going to be divided exactly 50-50 between me and my brother who was not here during those 10 years. 
And I mean, it was, I remember, I used to be a lot more emotional than I was, than I am now. And, and I remember there was times I would be crying because I'm like, why am I even here? You know, if it's, if this isn't even fair. And, and that's what somebody always, you know, that's another person that told me on succession is sometimes what's fair is not equal and what's equal is not fair. And luckily since then, you know, a lot of things have changed in the business. Um, the third and fourth generation went through succession. And, and then that was about four years ago that that happened. My dad, and my uncle split the ranch had, and they, and it was a very, very well thought out plan and was implemented really well. Kudos to both of them for doing that. And then it was, gave me the opportunity to, to partner in. I, I had a, I was running a separate cattle business out of a separate location and back and forth between the ranch daily. And so it gave me the opportunity to bring all of my stuff home you know, uh, we had, my dad and I had about equal cow numbers. So we were all of a sudden, instead of me buying into the operation, it was like, Hey, why don't we just do it this and this and this way? And, and so it's been really smooth. Um, it's really simple, really basic, but it's working. And I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, if there's anything that needs adjustment, we're, we're close enough that we're able to have those conversations to just constantly make sure we're improving for sure. And we both have our own areas too, that we, we, we like, and we don't really overstep a lot. The other, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about the cow side. And, and so he, he doesn't, he, he backs off the cow side. He would rather do other things. So it works out really well for us that we kind of have our own separate uh, lines and then we can cross over when needed to. That's great. I guess on the topic of cows, cause I know, so yours is cow, 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 calf operation. Could you explain what that means? Sure. So, so a cow calf operation is, so let me kind of give you the whole basis of it is, is we have a herd of mother cows and they raise a calf every single year on pasture. So majority of our cattle spend the majority of their life on, on grazing lands. Um, now, first off, before we get into that debate, no, the Sandhills of Nebraska is not really conducive to farming development, any other purpose, but it's excellent to raise cattle on and or any any really any type of livestock, you know. Um, and so for that, it's an ideal scenario. Um, so cattle are grazed the majority of their life here. Those those mature cows will stay. Um, we've got, I sold one yesterday that was 15 years old. So we've got some 15 wow. and 16 year old dams in our herd, you know, so the longevity, they can stay around as, as long as they keep producing every year. They're, they're welcome to stay on the operation. Now the calves will, we have two calving herds. We have a spring herd and a fall herd. So we calve in May and June, and then we also calve in September, October. And so those calves will be weaned off the, those cows. Um, for the most part, they'll stay here until they're about uh, close to about a year and a half of age, and then they'll be marketed somewhere else, you know, whether it be through a cell barn or through video or privately, or we'll retain ownership on them through a feedlot, or we'll send them to our, our direct-to-consumer beef business. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different facets going on, but the thing, I think the biggest thing for us is that, you know, we're not a one-stop shop. We follow our cattle all the way from the time they're born to the time that they end up on a person's plate. And so that's a little unique compared to a lot of operations out there. Usually an operation will just pick a section instead of the entire supply chain. And we try to make sure that we follow at least a good percentage of our cattle from that beginning all the way to that consumer plate. How are you able to do that, the tracking portion of it all? Yeah, so, so in 2019, we started Flying Diamond Beef, um, and so we had been using traceability um, before traceability was cool. So my, my grandfather used to keep cattle records um, back on, they were like by eight by four note cards that he had in like these plastic containers, and every little bit of data he would write down hmm. on those note cards on his cows. And then then when after the Oregon Trail computer days came along and they actually started to develop cattle software, you know, we, we had implemented cattle software back in the 1990s and, and might have even, I think it was about 1990. I don't think it was in the 80s yet. It was about the 1990. I was, I was pretty young then. So I was trying to remember when, when my uncle had bought, they had bought that for the ranch. And so started computerizing and took all that stuff from those um, Manila envelope. I mean, from that, those postcards and transferred it into the computer programs and now that's something that we do on a you know every time we work livestock everything is in our computer system so we can track 
at any given day where an animal is at and everything there is to know about that animal. So all of our animals have multiple forms of identification. They have panel tags, they have dual panel tags. Um, they have an electronic identification button that goes into their ear. They're also tattooed in their ear um, when they're just a, a little over a month old. And those tattoos will stay with them their entire life. They they have a hot iron brand. Um, it's still something that's really important out here in the in the boonies for for um, cattle theft purposes. And so we do hot iron brand them also. And so there's multiple identifications with that animal. And so we're able to track that animal all the way from birth to harvest, which which also provides us a really unique opportunity to, to, to really analyze how that animal is performing, all their data along the way, you know, anything from birth dates to birth weights to weaning weights to if they have horns to what color they are to where are they, you know, to what are they eating to what any vaccines or antibiotics they've received. It, we can keep track of everything. Hmm. So I know we talked a little bit before the recording on your video on YouTube with Peter Centinello. <laughs> and you guys were having a great discussion talking about, you were mentioning how you're having conversation with your father and he'd be bringing it back to the seventies and eighties and the problems that they were facing. And then the problems that you're facing now more would be more activism. And I want to talk a little bit about this topic because I was vegan for two and a half years and now I'm very, I'm very anti-vegan. I will be outspoken about that. And with the huge push of that and the plant-based movement and then pinning climate change on animal agriculture, you brought up a good point. They don't understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I was wondering if you could just expand on, on that portion, because it's very important that it's a lot of folks just from my side of things, just the people that aren't in agriculture and don't understand all of this. There's just so much information being tossed at them that again, this is one of the reasons why I have this podcast. So the people that are actually doing the work rather than the people behind keyboards have never visited a ranch or even worked or understanding in the land. Yeah. I was just hoping that you could expand on that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We, we could talk about that topic all day for sure. You know, like, so first off, welcome to the light side. We're glad to have you as a carnivore now. That's a great place to be. Um, you know, and I think I think that's one of the things that we really have to be conscientious of. And and I'll I'll say, you know, and I mean I get into discussions time after time again and there's and there's a couple groups that I won't argue with. And that will be vegans number one and it will be animal activists number two. Um, usually the thing I'll do in those cases, instead of starting an argument on social media, I'll just send them an invite to our operation. Not a one has taken me up on it yet. For some reason, I, I think they just like to argue. They just don't actually want to experience it in person. Um, but I think I think the bigger the bigger question is is why what is behind this movement? You know why why have we seen the plant based movement or the meatless Mondays movements or all these other pushes and and we really need to analyze where those pushes are coming from. Um, one of the things I've been really impressed with the last couple of years, about since COVID happened, is there's been a really strong push for carnivore, a carnivore diet, the carnivore lifestyle. Um, I I really try to follow a carnivore lifestyle, which is just consuming um, animal products alone. And, and it's one of those things that they're starting to see a lot of research that's happening, that it's very, very... Um, compelling research. But what's really fascinating is, you know, they'll be able to throw this research at some, at a, at maybe a, a university, like Harvard came out with one just here recently saying red meat can cause diabetes. But yet it's like when you start analyzing what they were actually asking the people involved in this study, and it's like, you're missing three quarters of your studies here. You're not giving factual information and why isn't this make why why is this made national news when this isn't a complete study? And yet they had a study prior to that that had all those facets filled in that showed how a, a heavy meat diet is healthy for you, and it does not make national news. So we have to be really conscientious of of exactly where those studies are coming from. You know what part of those studies are being are being pushed onto the national media scene. And, and it's not only, you know, it's not only in parts of our diet, because we are a really pros heavy processed food 
um, con uh, country in general. I mean, I'm sorry. Good luck finding somebody out there. I mean, when you start comparing photos of us now, of just the American population now compared in the 1960s, we're fat, number one. We have no muscle, number two. I mean, we're, we're literally killing ourselves because of, of the processed foods and amount of sugar that we're eating. And it's become, a, it's become kind of a passion project of mine to really get on board with, with the healthiness of going back to, to what our forefathers did. And that's eating very conscientious, minimal processed or not processed foods that we know where they come from. You know, am I an advocate of going to a grocery store and buying meat? Absolutely. If, if that's what you have available, go for it. Because a lot of our beef here from the ranch still ends up on a grocery store. But we can also sell it directly off our ranch. So, I mean, you, you there's options out there for people. But do you need to go to a grocery store and buy a box of frosted mini weeds that has like 40 grams of sugar in it? Well, you could if that's what makes you happy, but also expect there's going to be ramifications from it. So the diet aspect of it is one point. But then the climate picture is another point. And it's like, I just don't understand how we have got to that stupidity of level. You know, I mean, when we're looking at what ag does, I, I think I read some statistic once that like if all vegans, if everybody went vegan for a year, it would only like decrease, it wouldn't like even make a significant decrease. And I think, what did they say? Something about you could go vegan for a year, you could give up one transatlantic flight and it would be like the same effect on, on emissions, you know? And, and so our numbers aren't realistic in what we're, we're poking at. And I think that's one of the problems because when we start looking at beef as part of a nutritious diet, we're producing more meat with fewer cattle than we even did in the 1970s. And so there's a lot of success stories out there. And I think one of the biggest success stories is getting people out to our operation to see firsthand our operation hasn't changed since 1888, you know, when we, when we homesteaded. Yeah. There may be a couple more fences, but I can tell you what, I know for a fact our vegetation is better. We have more plant diversity. The cattle are, are excellent on, on this environment out here in the sand hills. There's a lot of great benefits and we're producing a, a very wholesome, nutritious product that, you know, without harming the environment out here in our area. And yet, then I'll go to the front range of Colorado and I get in a traffic jam and I'm like, you're trying to tell me that this is better for the world than what I'm trying to do in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, where I don't even might not even see a person for a couple days. You know, how is how is this the truth here? And so it gets really frustrating, especially when you start throwing in all the all the clamoring from overseas, you know, um, whether it be in the European Union or the UK or and some of those other countries that are like, get rid of all the cattle. They're killing the environment. Okay, well, what are you going to do if you go to a, a completely plant-based diet? Plants still need fertilizer. They still need chemicals. You know, you still need to harvest them. You still have all of those emissions too. So let's be realistic about what we're doing here and where we can actually get the most bang for our buck and, and not put not put small businesses out of business because we just have this harebrained idea that we get emotionally wrapped up in. That was a, that was my soapbox for the day. <laughs> no, I, I agree because even for Ireland, for example, I remember they were on the verge of, it was either one or 200,000 cattle that they were going to just slaughter essentially. But then you look at their Q1 in 2023 versus Q1 in 2022 beef imports, it's increased. So just that alone should make you question what's the actual motive behind it all because then there's no need for imports if you if you have those cattle already. And um, yeah, that's just hilarious. But on the topic of success, in, oh, go ahead. Well, I was in Ireland twice last fall and I, I got to spend time there with the Irish Cattle and Sheep Association and get out touring some of their farms in Ireland. Sorry for my language, but it's a shit show. And, and they have they have so many people that think they know what the heck they're talking about that are pushing these agendas. And, and it's, it's, they're going to, they're going to destroy um, their, their economics is what's going to happen because they're going to push all these. And, and Ireland is majority small farmers. I mean, we're talking 18 head average cattle herd size, and they're going to push all these people out of business. And all of a sudden they're going to be set up. They're not going to have any milk. They're not going to have any meat and they're going to be having to import everything. 
and and it's going to be a nightmare for them if they're not conscientious of what they're doing over there. So I, I like to I like to poke the bear on Irish news stories quite a bit oh, on yeah. social media because I've seen it firsthand. I know where the farmers are coming from firsthand, and I, I feel for them. I really, really do. How – I know that's a very complex question. How, how do you push back to that, especially with Ireland? You're saying they're smaller farms, and you, you have these powerful – institutions that are trying to push that how do you yeah how do we combat that you know what what i've found out to be successful in in that point is sometimes you know you hate to say it but having an international perspective is can be a little eye-opening um because once once a person that has an agenda is pushing an agenda so strong that you're starting to get international attention that's starting to push back and say hey you're wrong your, your numbers are wrong. Your data is wrong. Do you really realize the, the issues that you're causing for your farmers? They sometimes, it sometimes woes them up a bit. And so I think, I think it's important, especially for producers in the U.S., to look overseas and see some of those conversations that are happening in other countries. You know, whether it be the European Union is a really strong one. I was, I was over there three times last fall. Um, I spoke a number of times in the EU, especially to government officials. I mean, I was speaking in, in Brussels last December on, on agriculture and giving it from a producer perspective. And it's, it's one of those things. You guys, we, we really need to give the producers a push over there to encourage them to, to, to fight back, you know, to, to quit playing defense all the time and start playing offense. And I think they're really starting to turn a corner and recognize how important it's going to be for sustainability for, for their businesses, for sure. I agree with that. And that's actually on topic of carnivore. Sean Baker talks about that all the time that, uh, I mean, the vegans, they're very, very small percentage, but they're so loud. And that's just because they're always on offense. And then our side of things just kind of sitting back. And yeah, so I definitely agree with that. But on the, on the topic of success, I'm trying to make sure I have the award correct. It's the Beef Quality Assurance Calcalf Producers of the Year Award. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. So I guess because I don't know anything about any of the awards or anything within the context of agriculture. Um, yeah, if you could just explain what that award is and, and the qualifications and also just congrats on getting that for 2023. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. That was that was incredibly humbling for, for both dad and I and the operation, you know, and all the generations before. So, so Beef Quality Assurance is a nationwide program that was established. Oh, it's it's been in place since I oh, I think about 1990s or so. Now don't don't fact check me on that one. But so it came about on behalf of the beef checkoff. And and the reason that it came about was we were starting to see consumer perception of of the industry, of the beef industry going downhill. Um, people were were not as confident in buying beef, you know, because maybe they thought the animals weren't handled correctly. Things like was there proper withdrawal times on antibiotics? Were they being processed or harvested correctly? You know, the consumer trust was going down. So this program was implemented, and and what it does is it allows producers, any anybody, any producer out there, to become certified. And, and attend a training to learn about um, maybe some of those things that we, we know, but maybe we had forgotten, you know, uh, maybe proper vaccine protocol or low cattle, you know, low stress cattle handling or husbandry skills or transport, proper transportation usages. And, and a lot of those things that we do on a daily basis that it's really good to have a refresher on. So there's there's multiple multiple parts of the program that you can get certified in. There's a there's a cow calf certification. There's a feedlot. There's a trucker. Um, I haul our own cattle, so I also have a, a BQA transportation certification. And and so um, we have been part of the BQA program for years on the cow calf sector. And out of the I think there's seven hundred thousand producers in the U.S. that can be BQA qualified. You know they. They recognized what we were doing for our operation in terms of our animal handling and well-being, and, and that's where how we received the award. So it was, like I said, it was very, very humbling because we we focus our lives on our cattle. I mean, our cattle pretty much. I, I like to I like to tell our cows that this is a dictatorship. It's not a democracy, but you know, at the end of the day, our cows really do run our lives, and so it's really <laughs> nice to be recognized that. 
what what you're doing for your livestock is is really being is really within their best interest. Is all of this what led you to starting in Vero Smart? I don't know. Enviro Smart. Enviro Smart. Enviro Smart. No, actually, actually, yes. Well, I should say yes and no. So, so I mean, yes. The I think that so we started Enviro Smart Beef on Earth Day this year, and we had we had started a direct to consumer beef business in 2019. Myself and two of my best friends, and then unfortunately one passed away, and then got the bought the other one out and brought everything onto the ranch here. It's been about two years now on the ranch, and so. So this last year, um, you know, well, I was saying last year I traveled a lot to the European Union, and a lot of the things that the European Union is focused on right right now is about climate. You know, we're we're all so climate friendly, climate smart, all this stuff, and unfortunately, what some of the things they're doing, especially in terms of some of the rules and regulations they're passing on to producers, is is completely getting rid of any efficiencies that they have. And, and so when you take away efficiencies, you really are doing almost more damage to the environment than less. And so we, I came home from the EU kind of with this thought process in mind, you know, we really need to do a better job and better store, try to tell our story more and more than even what we're doing. So we rolled out EnviroSmart Beef on Earth Day. And what we did is we have to, the, there's some components to be in that. So how it is, is everything under our ranch falls under this, this EnviroSmart principles of human well-being, animal well-being, and environmental well-being. And then we've got subsets under each one, you know, talking about how the animals are handled, how the environment is taken care of, how we are taken care of, you know, both from a mental and even an economical standpoint. And then we genomic test those animals that we put on feed. And because of the genomic data that we received back, we're able to determine the optimal days on feed for that animal to reach its full carcass potential. So what does that mean? By utilizing that genomic data, we're able to say, okay, we're gonna send this animal at harvest at this date, maybe instead of this date further down the road. And what we're finding out is less, of course, I mean, it's just, it's common sense, less days on feed less impact on the environment. So it's it's taking it's taking stuff that's already there and available and just figuring out a way to utilize it to continue to increase your efficiency even more, which in turn is having a really positive effect on the environment. Hmm. So with the European Union as the main focal point of climate change, what would that be in America? Is uh, is there any type of main focal point in agriculture in America? Uh, I, I, what do you mean by that? Let's let's look into that a little bit more. Yeah, I guess because European Union, I mean, I see it all the time with just talking about climate change because not just Ireland I've seen, but um, the Netherlands also trying to significantly reduce the amount of cattle. And that just seems to be the culture of agriculture there right now. Is there any, I don't know if I, how I'm best asking that question or if, if it even is a question. Um is there, I guess, that push right now yeah, is, in the is, US? Yeah, is that similar thing happening here? Not yet. Um, you know, I, I should say, I shouldn't say not yet because yes, I think there is, there is always going to be a little bit of a push and, you know, and we're starting to see it, especially in, in, in the, in the corporate sector, you know, with things like carbon credits, carbon sequestration, all of that. So there are those discussions happening now. Um, are we seeing it in terms of you guys need to decrease your cow numbers? No, there's there hasn't been media that specifically come out and said that that's that's picked up that's picked up on a national media level. You know, um, is it coming? Could it potentially come? Yes, it could because what what we've seen happen before, especially in dealing with the EU on some of their like social topics and whatnot. You know, they take off in the EU, they get some traction there. And then we have these people, especially on East and West Coast, that are saying, well, hey, this is what's going on in the EU. Maybe we should try to be more like them and bring that into the U.S. And then that's that's kind of where the issue is, because sometimes is it 
is it they're really is it most scientifically based is it you know emotionally driven you know and and those are all become important parts of those conversations too so we have to be really conscientious of what's going on especially especially in the european union because of the large population and and also because of their worldwide presence and and see what direction they're doing because even simple things like them passing some new regulations talking about, you know, carbon sequestration and deforestation can play a part in some of those trade talks. And so we have to be really conscientious of what's going on for sure. So it doesn't affect us. And I know with that too, you can also just change so quickly with how fast everything is shared on social media. And yeah, it's wild. Um, so I, I just wanted to transition the topic just a little bit. Going back to the YouTube video with Peter Centinello, you were, you brought up a great point of people seeing you as a hick. And I remember growing up, I'm from, well, sorry, because I remember growing up, there was a nearby rural town and they would have a bring your tractor to school day in high school. And I was very ignorant and I used to just, that, that's what came to mind. And then as I switched into agriculture and worked on a farm and seeing them operate it's not just farming, you're, you're a mechanic, you're a carpenter, you're a veterinarian, you're a, a plumber. And I also wanted to bring up this really good paragraph from a book called Bet the Farm by Beth Hoffman that really sums it up well. Farmers have a certain knowledge that is hard for city dwellers to fully comprehend. It's not just that they intimately know a slice of the natural world less and less of us understand. It's also that the job description calls for lassoing very different skill sets from financial business planning and engineering knowledge to an understanding of chemistry, biology, geology, and even climatology. To farm, you must know how and when a seed germinates, what chemical components it needs, and where and how to plant it so that it will thrive. Plus, you need to be able to figure out the cost of planting and of running the machinery and what, fingers crossed, you might be able to make back from it if it all goes well. So with that being said, I'm just curious if there is a certain experience that you've had throughout your time on a, a, a ranch of a story to where um, that just might surprise folks that just you've had to really think on your feet because I was just watching the farm owner operate his and everything that he was doing was just mind blowing. And again, people are just so disconnected. That they're not, they don't think about that and just see you guys as these hicks and it's a shame. Yeah, you know, it really is. And I mean, I, I, I wear that title, of, you know, with a lot of pride. And I think the reason being is because exactly what you said, people don't understand really what we have to know. I, I get it real enjoyment out of um, going to urban areas, you know, and, and having conversations with people and people will be like, what do you do for a living? And I'll be like, well, I'm a rancher. Wait, you're a what? You know, because I, I think that's one of the things that I've always have, have said for as long as I can remember is, you know, you can take, I can go into your environment, into an urban area and fit in, but can you come out to my environment and fit in? And, you know, and it's amazing to me once people actually set foot on the operation, they have a whole different perception of, of everything that happens. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's those basic things that you don't even think about, you know. To take your tractor to school day. We still have that out here. <laughs> Just so you know, it still happens. And what's so what's so amazing is is people think that's a hick thing, and what they don't realize is, you know, some of those tractors are three to five hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's a that's a city person's home that they can only ever dream of. You know, and and that might be one tractor on their entire operation, and and you know, out of out of fifteen tractors or something. You know, and and I think. Or I, I enjoy it personally when I'll pull up next to a Tesla and somebody will be bragging about that they paid money for a Tesla and I'm sitting there in a big F-350 <laughs> that I have because, and I'm just like, sure, okay, yeah, what, what you said, you know, granted, you're, you're going to find parking easier than I'm going to be, but I mean, it's just those stupid things that people don't think about, but I think what I really appreciate the most about agriculturalists in general is that we're self-sufficient. You know, if we have a problem, we know that there's going to be a solution and, and we're not going to, you know, in, in our case where we're demographically isolated, we can't afford to constantly have somebody else coming out paying for mileage to fix our problems. We're going to figure out a way to fix them ourselves. And so I think that that's what's really, I think the most 
most rewarding for me and most self-gratifying is, is having a problem and I might find the most weirdest, unique way to come about coming up with a solution for it, but it's going to be a solution and, and I'm not going to have to depend on somebody else to do it for me. Um, I remember a story a while back about I had a family member that came out for a holiday and they showed up in their sandals and, and jeans and it was winter time. And I said, uh, what happens if your car breaks down on the way? And they're like, well, we'll call AAA. And, you know, I don't think any of us on the ranch have a AAA membership because if something happens, we're going to figure out a way, a way to deal with it. And, and I think, I think people, I, I wish more urban urbanites um, understood what that is like to not have everything at your fingertips all the time and to really have to use that brain power to come up with a variety of solutions that work. You know, it might not be a plan B. You might get down. Yesterday I was talking about a plan F, you know, it were of, of that morning, how that things were going that morning. And I, but it's the self-sufficiency I think that is so rewarding. And I wish more people could experience that. I wholeheartedly agree. And that's why I can never overstate that folks need to visit and volunteer for a weekend. That's that just one day of doing the actual work and then potentially having an actual meal from that farm. It is literally life changing. And you quickly realize just how disconnected you've been and how fulfilling that is. And then how much respect you have for the folks that are actually doing all of the hard work because it doesn't matter what the weather is or what day it is. You got to do the work as a, as a rancher and a farmer. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And let's hold on though. You do bring up a topic that I've, I've become a little passionate and vocal on about yeah. people visiting or volunteering. You know, I get okay. people that want to volunteer on our operation all the time. And one of the things, one of the things that I think that I, I have for me, I can say I have an issue with is is those emails I receive that, hey, can we come out and work with you for a week? Or can we come join you for a day or whatever? And there's this part of me that I, I always try to really encourage people to come out and visit and we'll give them a tour of our operation. But in terms of working with us, you know, I, I like to think of it as the same way as if you were a banker. You know, and, and all of a sudden, if I go, hey, I'm going to come to your operation and I'm going to come work with you for a week in the bank. Is that okay? You know, I mean, we really need to make sure that we still classify farms and ranches as businesses. And, and so are, are there opportunities to come out for tours? Absolutely. 100%. Will, will I have you work cattle with us? No, um, I won't because we keep everything in house. We're really conscientious of our cattle. Our cattle know us, we know them. And it becomes it becomes a safety and liability issue too. And I think sometimes even on the producer side, we don't realize, you know, things like brandings and those social events, how massive liability and safety concerns they really are. And so it's really tough sometimes to to really kind of separate the business and and learning aspect of it. But you know, I, I think there's a place for those farm tours and whatnot. And we always try to keep an open door policy for people that want to come out for tours and whatnot. But will I let you work with us for a week? Uh, unless you're an intern or you know or or an employee, probably not, because um, I'm I'm more concerned about our liability, safety, and also that of our livestock too. Oh. No, that's a, that is a great point. Um, because I know, I guess there's a lot of f farmers and ranchers I know personally that do want volunteers, but I know that would be um, a case by case basis because I've also would definitely understand. Um, this is also just on the topic of agriculture, but just being out on the land, there's a huge um, fantasization of that too as well it, without understanding all of the work so they want to go volunteer and they don't realize how much work it is and that becomes way more problematic because I remember talking to my the farm owner that I, I worked on and he mentioned that to where people would say they'd come out and volunteer and then day two comes around they already want to leave and they would just leave because <laughs> they just don't understand how, everything that you would have to be doing yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. But also from the from the farm or ranch owner, you know, something we do, it doesn't matter if you're out here touring or whatnot, 
you have to sign a liability waiver when you show up on the operation. You know, um, we have we have warnings posted around in places, which is a little bit different for a production only enterprise. We're not doing agritourism or anything like that. You know, we're we're cow calf operation, and so you know you'll see warning signs and liability signs when you come into the yard, and and that's one of the things you know we hadn't really thought about till a little over three years ago. When one of the business partners was killed in an ATV accident, and and I mean it really opens up farm liability is such a gray area that we need to make sure from the producer side that we're protected too. So I mean if you get those opportunities to go out and volunteer on a farm or be part of that, make sure you know and and be conscientious that hopefully that producer will make you sign a liability waiver coming in. But if not, maybe it might be something you might want to encourage them to do, um, to have in the future, because they do need to have some kind of protection too. Agreed. Um, on the topic of regulation, I'm assuming that you've had a lot of challenges with that. Um, I, I mean, especially with, there's just so many regulations, so many laws with agriculture and it just seems like a very complex um i don't know if problem but i'm just curious uh, yeah just have you faced a lot of challenges with regulation with everything that you're doing not not as much not as much as some and i i think the reason being is because when production agri you know in in livestock production agriculture the way that we're doing with a pasture-based system you know, we don't we don't use excessive chemicals, fertilization, pesticides, um, you know, any any of the additional stuff there that is being more and more regulated. Um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, things like waters of the U.S. has can affect us potentially. You know, some of that regulation we've got to be really conscientious of. Um, hunting rights is also a big one. There was a there was a bill they were trying to get passed in in Nebraska a couple of years ago to allow to allow hunters onto school land. And so in Nebraska, there's school land out there that is owned by the Board of Educational Land and Funds that producers rent on a yearly basis. I mean, we've had our school land in our family for decades upon decades, but they were going to give hunters permission to go out and hunt on these school lands. And I mean, so you're going to have hunters come in on your operations that are free to go wherever. And it was, you know, so the thing, biggest thing is, is just to be, we always have to be, have our foot on the gas and be really conscientious of any legislation that's going forward. I, I have a friend of mine in New York state and she was speaking at a, at a conference here just a couple of weeks ago and, and it was to a bunch of New York state legislatures. And so she was asking some advice on it and I'd gone down and looked through what agriculture bills were going on in the New York legislature. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> Holy smokes. These this this is not good, you know. Um they're they're so so extreme and you know and we're seeing that right now up in I believe it's either or I think it might be Oregon right now. There's a legislative bill which they tried to also do in Colorado at one time that would make it completely illegal to like hunt animals, to process animals for food, to to do any artificial insemination on animals. And the the problem is is if one of these bills gets passed somewhere, we we've, we've seen it happen in in California time and time. There's a legislative bill that they think won't get passed and it ends up getting passed and it's detrimental on food production. And because it's this small, this small, really vocal set of yippie dogs behind it that are just pushing this stuff forward, and, and they don't realize the ramifications of it. And so we've got to be so overly conscientious of this. And it's important, you know, it's important for producers to belong to organizations. You know, I'm, I'm actively involved in our National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I serve as their chair of international trade. And the reason I'm involved in those associations is because I feel that it's important to be able to share, you know, my story with those people on in in DC and and explaining how much their some of the rules and regulations that they pass can damage us or can benefit us. And if I don't, who will, you know? Um and so we need to make sure we belong to those organizations that have that voice in DC because there's a lot of those politicians that are making decisions for us that have never set foot on an operation, especially in western Nebraska. How do you go about trying to, I guess, get them on your side and understanding where you're coming from, With, especially for the ones that have never 
had any experience on these on ranches or farms yeah the the biggest way that i um, that i've found to be more successful for me personally and and that's the that's what makes this that's what makes ag producers so unique is every one of us has a different story, a different scenario, a different business model. But what's really worked uh, for us is that, you know, I can explain we're a 130 some plus year old operation in the Sandhills. And yet then the one great thing I have is I have that cell phone and I said, and this is our operation. And I can just go like this right through the photos and I see vast open areas, green grass, fat cows, beautiful lakes, and uh, this amazing environment. And, and I, you know, and I like to say, I like to say to keep the emotion out of things a lot of times when you're talking about ag rules and regulations, but I also think it's important to, for people to see how you're passionate about what you do and why you do it. And I mean, I have a purpose. And I think that's one of the things that people struggle with nowadays is finding their purpose. And I have my purpose. And my purpose is, is to provide the best quality life I can for my animals so that they can fulfill their purpose. And that's feeding the world. And we have to be able to share those stories, those experiences with those people, you know, that aren't familiar with those operations. But at the same time, we need to also express our displeasure in them, too, if they're out of bounds. Um, there was a couple of legislative bills just happened recently that I was not pleased with. They were they were pretty detrimental to our industry. One was getting rid of our checkoff system um, across all facets, not only not only across the beef industry, but across you know, grains and, and milk and everything else too. And it was, it could have been pretty detrimental because of the fact if you combine all those industries together, a $750 million budget right there for research, education, promotion. That's our advertising wheelhouse right there. You know, when you start comparing it to big companies, like I think we've had this discussion before, like you compare it to big companies like Pepsi, you know, Pepsi's got what a $2 billion advertising budget. Same with what we're seeing with pharmaceuticals now. Any company can push an agenda that they want to push. And so we have to be able to provide a voice for those that don't aren't able to advertise on behalf of themselves. Now, I can sit here, I can advertise our ranch and producers till I'm blue in the face, but I can guarantee you I don't have a $2.2 billion advertising budget. You know, I might have a $100 advertising budget. <laughs> but if every producer out there started pushing, you know, their products and their voice and other producers in the industry in general, you know, we could be so great. But one of the biggest downfalls that I see in the ag industry time and time again is we circle our wagons and then we start shooting inwards, you know, upon each other. And and we're we're not the problem. We need to be pushing pushing out and selling ourselves to everyone else out there. Quit blaming everybody else. If you if you don't like what's going on, number one, get out of the industry. Go find a different industry to be involved in. Or, or do something about it. You know, get involved, volunteer, become a member, actually experience it firsthand instead of sitting and becoming a keyboard jockey. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> That's great. On So I completely forgot to mention this whenever on the topic of Ireland, but you were mentioning on um, international trade because I know you've traveled to Brazil and Australia and New Zealand, which are huge for the beef industry, especially in America. I'm curious what the experience was like visiting the processing and, and their operations there versus how it's done in America. Yeah, so so I travel weird, <laughs> you know, a lot of people and they travel. I, I have a lot of good friends that love to travel, love to sit on a beach at those all-inclusive resorts for a week and drink margaritas. And <laughs> and that's never been my travel style. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've traveled to six continents. And the, and the reason I've traveled to, haven't traveled to the seventh is I can't find a processing plan in Antarctica yet. So that's, that's my passion when I travel. I love to visit processing facilities and see, you know, so see the innovation and, and what's going on in other countries, not only by talking to the producers, but also seeing how their supply chain works. Um, and what's really surprising, you know, when I, when I get back to the U.S. and I'll get asked about it constantly, like, we we think we're really great producers in the U.S. and we we are in our own right. We have some excellent things in the U.S. that we shouldn't take for granted. I mean, we're in terms of efficiencies, we're amazing. You know, we're we're one of the top countries, if not the top countries, for what we're able to do with our efficiencies. Now, 
if somebody goes, where's the, where's the most technologically advanced packing plant you're in? I go, Brisbane, Australia. You know, Australia is phenomenal in terms of what they're doing for ag tech. You know, and, and a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of some of the programs I use here in our operation are asked from Australia or from New Zealand. You know, um, when I asked where the cleanest processing processing facility I've been in, it's, was a chi- it was a chicken processing facility in, in China, of all wow. places. And, and so, you know, it gives a little bit different perspective when you've seen operations, not only cattle operations overseas, but see where cattle end up at, you know, in terms of how they're harvested how that technology is integrated into those and how that te- also how that information is sent back to the producers. And, and you start to see that we need to keep our pedal to the floor here in the U.S. because sometimes when we start talking about international marketing of product and about U.S. product going overseas, it's actually a harder sell than you think to get some of our U.S. product into other countries. Um, you know, I was... My very first overseas experience was to Russia, Ukraine, and Poland. And I remember talking to this gal in Russia, and she had been so, so irritated with her visit to the U.S. because she ate all these GMOs and it got her fat. And so she was completely anti, anti-U.S. ag in general because of this. Granted, she came over and she ate a lot of ice cream and donuts and, and sugar, but hey, besides the point, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, we, we won't get into that little part of the thing, but, but I mean, it's, we've got to be so conscientious of, of what we're doing on that international scene too, and, and how we're represented. And that's, that's way that the programs like the beef quality assurance programs can come into play because by being able to show what our producers are in the doing in the U S I can have the opportunities when I travel overseas to say, here, this is what we're doing. This is how this program works this would be really beneficial to your producers. And it's kind of like this light bulb goes off that, oh, hey, yeah, you know, we should be doing stuff like that too. And then it just makes our producers stronger, makes our food supply and production system stronger. And then in turn, we get to feed more people. I'm curious, because we import so much uh, beef from those countries, why is that? So there's certain countries, for instance, that we, we – do import lean trimmings off of. And and the reason being is because of the way that our supply chain is set up in the U.S. So we we feed a lot of heavy animals. You know, I mean, I, I took cattle to the processor yesterday for our direct-to-consumer business. I mean, they're averaging, they were averaging around 1,560 pounds. You know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of fat on those animals. And so they bring in... Um, a lot of beef from other countries, like especially from like the South American countries, that's a lean trim. So they can combine it with that fat in order to make, you know, your different grains that you can market. So is, is it a good thing? Yes. Yes. And no. I mean, I see it. I see it from both sides because from a producer, I see it like, dude, shut those borders down. You know, we can, we can shut them down. We can feed our people and we can export product. And why are we importing product? But what, what I have found out in all, in all the worldwide travels I've done is that trade is important. I mean, trade is, is such a huge component of, of how a country works and, and how its economical system is set up. And so you know, we, it's, it's tough if we're just exporting product out and we're not reciprocating product in. Now, does it have, to, is it just one product across the board? No, because I mean, it's amazing when we start talking about things of some trade. I remember looking back on, I got a list, I had access to a list and this was back in like the, what was it about two, early 2000s when we were talking about mandatory country of origin labeling. And we had Canada and Mexico that were totally upset with us. And I saw the list of the, the trade repercussions that came out of Canada. And it was things like they were going to start import, they, imposing these taxes on things like maple syrup, ketchup. I mean, these things that are not beef, but trade has ramifications. And so would I like to see us? import less product yes i would especially from especially from countries like brazil where brazil seems to really really struggle with some of their reporting in a timely matter on things like uh, bse's cases 
Um, and, and we see this time and time again, that if you can't follow the rules, you shouldn't be allowed to play the game. And I think we need to be stronger on those countries that don't follow the rules. Brazil is a prime example of that. But at the same time, there is huge opportunities out there for trade, even for the U.S. You know, we're, we're constantly trying to increase our increase our product in the in the U.K. is a great example. Um, we're trying to work on those regulations in the European Union. You know, we, we do a lot of trade with that African rim. And, and so there's huge opportunities there is for sure on that export market. Is I'm curious for yourself because I visited a different ranch last year and this was around June and he was scheduling processing for a couple of his cattle. And I remember he was scheduling it for... I believe September or October of this year. Are those the same challenges are you facing yourself with processing? No, fortunately we're not. Um, and and I know it's a huge issue. You know, I, I, I get a lot of com- comments on that regularly. Um, we we started working, the, we, we originally started with a processor that was down on the west slopes of Colorado. It was about 18 hour drive down and back. Wow. And, and fortunately we had a closer USDA plant that opened up because all of our direct-to-consumer, which is only a small part of our business. It's less than 10% of the cattle that we harvest in a year goes to our DTC program. But they did open up a closer USDA facility that's only about a six-hour round-trip drive, so a lot a lot more convenient. Um, and we definitely wanted to support more local with that. Uh, it's, it's a lot pricier, which is the downfall. But, you know, we're able to build that relationship with that processor. Now, our saving grace is that we take enough animals that we're, we can be a little more pushy on our dates, I guess, you know, um, and where they're also start trying to build their clientele base. They give precedence, I think, to some of those producers that bring them bring them more headcount. But there's this is a twofold. I mean, this is a this is a huge, huge conversation, I think, in the industry in general is is packing facilities, you know, um, in in Nebraska, in order to sell individual cuts off an animal or to do across state lines, they have to be USDA inspected. Uh, what does that do for us? It gives us some security on our end. Um, and what I see is if they aren't USDA inspected, it opens us up to a lot of liability issues. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, think about you go to a small mom and pop plant, you get some product back, you know, you send that product, you sell that product to your next door neighbor, they develop, they get E. coli off of it, they die, you know, they end up suing your operation, you don't have a beef business that's separate than your ranch, and you could lose your entire ranch. I mean, I'm saying absolute worst case scenario, but you still have to think of those scenarios. So, so what the USDA certification does is it does help us with that liability aspect of that. Plus the beef business is set up separate from the ranch. And so, you know, we know that they can't, nothing can come back on the ranch either if by some wild chance something would happen. And so there are those concerns now. So, so when we started seeing those supply chain issues during COVID, Everybody was like, we've got to build more packing plants. We've got to get away from the big four and, and the big four are the devil and, and whatnot. And, and one of the things I think we as producers forget is, yeah, I, don't, I don't like big corporations as much as anybody does, but we still need them. You know, I mean, we saw this in terms of when Tyson had their fires and stuff and supply chain shuts down. I mean, we're dependent on those packing facilities. So there's been other packing facilities, of course, that have either come online or are going online. Now, now what's the problem? Okay, the overall cow herd right now is the lowest that it's been since they've started keeping track of this back like in the 1960s. Wow. Okay, you only have a set amount of shackle space. And right now, those packing plants are running about an 80 to 85% capacity. And you're bringing on these new packing plants that at my last count within about two years are going to add an additional about 4.5 million head a year um, shackle space. And so something's going to give in there. And I'm not for sure what it is. I mean, I hope, you know, I, I think we all hope realistically that maybe some of those larger corporations will give. But more than likely, I see what's going to happen is it's going to be those smaller packing plants that are either going to be like, okay, we can't economically do this. We're going to sell 
hey, if they're going to sell, who's going to buy them up? It's going to mm-hmm. be the big four. I mean, we saw this. This is how the big four came to be. This is all this has all happened before. So what do we need to do to help producers out? We need to get some of that red tape, get rid of the red tape to make those small processors that want to become USDA certified have that availability to become USDA certified a lot easier. You know, make make the red tape, make grant opportunities out there, which they which they are have done, you know, and and let that let that occur. But also what's really surprising when you talk to a number of small producers, like those small processors, they don't want to become USDA certified. And and so, you know, it's just a it's it's a double-edged sword here. And so we need to figure out a way that, yes, I want I want everyone to be able to know a local producer, you know, build that relationship. But at the same time, we also need to realize that it's important to have those big processing facilities too, because that's what's so great about the US beef industry is that efficiency. I mean, you can't, there is no other country in the US, I mean, in the world that can go out, harvest 3,500 to 5,000 head a day in a facility. I, I mean, it just doesn't happen. I've, I've, I've visited packing plants, it doesn't happen. And so that efficiency that we have is amazing. And, and we can't shut that part of the supply chain down either. My last question with that then, since the focus was efficiency, how is the quality of of those places? I know you're talking with the USDA certified inspections, but yeah, I'm just curious with just how fast that goes. Is there anything within that process to where, um, actually, yeah, it's not really a question then. Never mind on that. It is. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know where you're going with that. And I mean... I, you know, I've been to a number of processing facilities in the U.S. and and it is absolutely phenomenal what they're able to do in terms of efficiencies and follow those rules and regulations that, I mean, they, it's, it's a science. I mean, it is such a unique science, integral science of what they're able to do for safety. Now, is there still is there still issues? I mean, I'm not going to sit here as a producer and say, no, we still, we, we can do better because we can do better. We're still seeing things like, like buckshot in animals, especially from that South. I don't know what they're doing down there in the Southeast part of the U S but they're doing something down there, you know? I, I mean, and, and you know, so, so that becomes an issue. Um, antibiotic residual, we, you know, there is, there is, um, spot testing. And there is a blacklist that goes out every week. So we need to be as producers, we need to stop that, you know, we need to make sure we follow label directions, we need to make sure we follow animal safety protocols, you know, continue to improve things like bruising. Um, you know, those are all important. And I think it's important for producers out there to say, hey, this, this stuff still happens. You know, there's a couple of you bad apples out here that need to get your butt in gear. And, and so because you're making the rest of us producers look bad. And, and so I really think we need to be really conscientious of that, especially as we continue to see more of those dairy calves that they're doing beef on dairy now as they're bringing those into the beef production cycle. What does that look like, you know, in terms of some of those facets, too, especially antibiotic withdrawals? You know, how are those going to impact our production chains? And, and so. I think what we need to do as producers, we need to continue to improve our operations, you know, continue to improve our animal health and well-being and those standards that we have. But at the same time, you know, be cognizant that the consumer is our end game and we want to make sure that we can get the best possible product to our consumer. But I don't have any concerns about any of those large plants that I've been into, you know, for, for health and safety standards. I think they're doing a phenomenal job and they continue to constantly improve and change too. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on. This was amazing. I guess before you go, are there any last comments that you have or anything else that you would like to, to plug? Yeah, of course, I'll plug our business. So <laughs> please uh, follow us on social media and head over to our website, flyingdiamondbeef.com. We ship all over the U.S. You know, um, and always please keep us in mind. We'd love to give ranch tours or show our part of little slice of heaven out here in Nebraska anytime you're through the area. But call in advance because we we don't take kindly to people showing up out here unannounced. <laughs> no, definitely don't ever do that for any farm or ranch. <laughs> That's yeah, please don't. It happens yeah. more than we like to yeah. admit. Please don't. <laughs> Thank you again, Jacqueline. Have a good one. Awesome. Thank you.